0: Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller. Today we're going to start off with a recipe for roast chicken with Dijon sauce. This is a story about closets. How messy they can get when you spend a year caring for a baby and put things away so haphazardly that one day they won't close at all and you beg your in-laws to watch the baby for a few hours so you can clean out your closets. Uh, Yep, things can get that bad. But if I hadn't cleaned out this closet... I wouldn't have snuck off to the bedroom for a while with an old issue of gourmet that I discovered in a tote bag, the French bistro one, and I found a chicken recipe I couldn't believe I hadn't made yet, that I had to make immediately. So it's not just a story about closets, Phew! it's also a story about butchering, and I do mean in the, wow, you really butchered that sense, in that one of my goals in the kitchen has been to learn how to take apart a whole chicken. There are so many reasons I want to be able to do this. One, it saves money. It makes us more self-sufficient in the kitchen. And it's easier to buy clean and local chickens, which are mostly sold whole. And it's efficient. My husband likes white meat. I like dark meat. The Muppet ain't picky. And we all agree that chicken stock made from the backs and et cetera's of whole chickens, I keep them in the freezer until I've amassed enough for stock, is superior in every way look how far that little bird goes so with the guidance of another gourmet production this video from Ian Nauer who brought us these by the way and there's a link on smittenkitchen.com this was my first effort which explains why it looks so butchered hey it only gets better from here I promise mostly though this is a story about our new favorite chicken dish From the day I first made it we couldn't wait to eat it again and it's gone on repeat in our kitchen more times than any other dish that I've shared with you. With only a handful of ingredients that you probably already have around it's so simple and it's done in under an hour. The sauce is like nothing else so fierce and bright. I found it so difficult to not pour over the entire plate full of tiny roasted Yukon gold potatoes and al dente green beans with flaky salt that you can cook at the same time as the chicken, that I stopped fighting it. And since you had to open a bottle of white wine to make the chicken, you get to drink that too and feel like you're in a bistro in a faraway land. Even if you're stuck at home on a Wednesday night trying to chew quietly enough that the baby won't wake up and try to join the party. Roasted chicken with Dijon sauce adapted from gourmet, March of 2008. The sauce is on the thin side but can be thickened up by reducing the sauce over high heat for several minutes. This concentrates the flavors as well and if you haven't used a sodium, low sodium broth, you might find the results a little bit salty so just a word of warning. You can always add salt later. Three pounds of chicken parts thighs, drumsticks, and or breasts with skin and bones, one tablespoon of vegetable oil, two small shallots thinly sliced, three-quarter cup of dry white wine, three-quarter cup of reduced sodium or sodium-free chicken broth, one-quarter cup of heavy cream, two tablespoons of smooth Dijon mustard, one tablespoon of finely chopped chives or the green parts of scallions, Preheat the oven to 450 degrees with a rack in the middle. Pat the chicken dry and season generously with salt and fresh ground black pepper. Heat oil in an oven-proof 12-inch skillet. If you've got a cast iron skillet, it's great here. Over medium-high heat until it shimmers. Working in two batches, brown the chicken skin side down first and turning once about five minutes per batch. I like to take a lot of care in this step, not moving the chicken until the skin releases itself and has a nice bronze on it which will provide the best flavor. Return all chicken skin side up to the skillet and roast in the oven until just cooked through about 15 to 20 minutes. Transfer the chicken to a platter and then add shallots, wine and broth to pan juices in the skillet and boil scraping up any brown bits until reduced by half and that'll take about two to three minutes. Add cream and boil until slightly thickened about one minute. To thicken the sauce further, turn the heat to high and boil it until it reduces to a consistency that you prefer. Strain the sauce through a sieve into a bowl. If you're feeling fancy, and I never am, but if you don't you might find the chicken bits scraped up from the pan in your sauce. We don't mind personally. But whisk in mustard, chives, and salt and pepper to taste and serve the chicken with the sauce. Yum! Next, we've got a recipe for miso, sweet potato, and broccoli bowl. You can make your own bowls at home. Here are the things that I jotted down on my cooking wish list whilst I was in the UK. Baked cauliflower cheese, a proper English Sunday roast, with fried potatoes, Yorkshire pudding, and creamy horseradish sauce. The full English breakfast, authentic equals e. Every item must be fried, apparently. Cider vinegar and Maldon sea salt crisps with champagne, please. Chunky olive oil and mushroom risotto, clotted cream and marmalade scones, or shall I say, marmalade. Welsh cakes, chocolate-dipped digestives, and fall apple plum crisps, thickly drizzled with fresh cream. (laughs) That's a good wish list. Then I came home and made this instead. I am sure you understand. Before one swan dives into a vat of thick cream and baked cheddar and passes out on a Yorkshire pudding pillow, only to revive oneself with a deep inhale of horseradish triple cream sauce... One must reset their system, so to speak. One must prepare. At the very least, one must dust off their gym ID. So I put all those notes in the Dead of Winter Need Comfort files and returned to the land of fall where the leaves are beginning to turn, fragrant, unblemished apples hang from acres of trees, and Gwyneth Paltrow gently suggests that if you coat the sweet potatoes and broccoli that are on every market stand with a heavenly miso dressing you will find some gorgeous dinnertime nirvana in a bowl. Okay, she didn't really say that, but it's what I heard when she shared the recipe a few weeks ago in Goop. I didn't really follow it. I have my own miso sesame dressing that I used on the sugar snap slaw in this cookbook, and there's a link, and vegetable roasting method that I prefer and used rice instead of greens. But this idea, this bowl thing... It's a really brilliant concept, I think, that we should wholly embrace, because when I put a few piles of brown rice and various roasted vegetables on a plate, it looks sparse and overly earnest. It looks like a critique of that second slice of pie that you reached for last night. When I layered in a bowl with dressing and a scattering of bicolored seeds, it looks irresistibly stunning something I would like to curl on my lap while sitting on a stoop and watch people crunch through leaves on their hurried ways to places that I don't need to be and feel totally centered and restored. Or, you know, I could throw it down on the dinner table 10 whole minutes, a record first time ever, before meltdown o'clock, and marvel that I finally found a way to combine the two vegetables that my kid is most eager to eat in a way that tastes grown up both work and leave plenty of space on your dance card for the mess of buttery plums coming later this week. Here's the recipe for miso, sweet potato, and broccoli bowl. Inspired by the version in Goop and the dressing is from the Smitten Kitchen cookbook. Goop suggests that you put the vegetables over the couple cups of spinach or other salad greens but I used grains instead. I used a half mixture of black Paponica and brown jasmine rice, which together made the prettiest purple-red mixture. I'm one of those people who bought a rice cooker in the last year and now I can talk about nothing else. Being able to toss some water and grains in a machine and walk away while they cook themselves and then keep themselves warm and perfect for an hour easily. It has changed dinner time for the so much better and you can use it for other grains, too. I was going to use some rainbow quinoa in the mix as well, but I decided not to overly complicate things. A certain four-year-old would like me to add that it plays twinkle-twinkle when you hit the start button, so there's that too. There's of course no reason to only use these vegetables, or to not swap in others if you desire. I'd estimate about one quarter cup of dried rice or grains per person, most triple in volume once cooked. I forgot to buy ginger before making the dressing this time and I was shocked that we didn't notice it missing this time. So don't panic if you're short an ingredient or two. It all tastes good once it's all put together. This serves four. For the bowl, you'll need one cup of dried rice or another cooking grain of your choice. One to two sweet potatoes, about one and a half pounds. One large bundle of broccoli, about one pound one to two tablespoons of olive oil, coarse or kosher salt, freshly ground black pepper, one teaspoon of white sesame seeds, one teaspoon of black sesame seeds, and for the miso sesame dressing you'll need one tablespoon of minced fresh ginger, but again, if you don't have it, it still works, one small garlic clove minced, two tablespoons of white miso, that's the mildest kind, two tablespoons of tahini, and other nut butters can work in a pinch. One tablespoon of honey, one quarter cup of rice vinegar and two tablespoons of toasted sesame oil and two tablespoons of olive oil. Heat oven to 400 degrees, place the rice or grain and cooking liquid in a rice cooker or on the stove and then cook according to the package directions. Peel sweet potatoes and cut into one inch cubes and cut the tops off the broccoli and separate into bite-sized florets. If your broccoli stems feel especially woody, I like to peel them with the same vegetable peeler and then cut them into one half to one inch segments. Coat one large or two smaller trays with a thin slick of olive oil. Layer sweet potatoes on a tray and sprinkle with salt and pepper. Roast for 20 minutes until browning underneath. Then flip and toss the chunks around and then add broccoli to the trays. Season again with salt and pepper and roast for another 10 to 20 minutes until the broccoli is lightly charged at the edges and sweet potato is fully bronzed and tender. Toss the chunks around one more time if it looks like they're cooking unevenly. In a small skillet, toast black and white sesame seeds until fragrant. You can do this in the oven if you're using an oven-proof skillet and then let cool. While vegetables roast, prepare sesame miso dressing. Combine everything in a blender and run until smooth, scraping down the sides once. Taste and adjust the ingredients if needed, but try to resist adding more honey if it tastes salty, as that extra pop of saltiness is exactly what I think the sweet potato needs. Assemble the bowls, scoop some rice or grains into each, and then pile on the roasted sweet potatoes and broccoli. Coat lightly with sesame miso dressing and finish with toasted sesame seed duo. Serve with extra dressing on the side. Next, we're going to go for dessert. Cheesecake marbled pumpkin slab pie. So, I'm deep in my friend's giving planning for this weekend, and I think that I finally understand, and really it's about time, Deb, why Thanksgiving is so daunting, even for people who like to cook. It's the volume. I mean, maybe you come from a small family and your Thanksgiving dinner is for four or six people. That sounds lovely. It's still a lot of cooking, but I bet your one-year-old at least weighs less than your bird. Uh, 20 people or more is completely the norm at our family gatherings. And we're having 16 friends this weekend in our, I won't even tell you the square footage apartment because you'll either start clucking your tongue in a completely undeserved pity party But, or start spending us, sending us housing listings listings in Montclair. I'm looking at the yield on my usual recipes and then trying to multiply them by three and write a grocery list. And it's basically like all the butter that was ever made, plus a gallon or two of stock, plus, then I burst into tears and text my husband the list and he schleps everything in case you were ever wondering who the actual beauty and brains behind this operation actually is. So, last week I established myself as team casserole when it comes to the planning of Thanksgiving sides. This week, let me also reiterate my long standing membership in the slab pie charter. Slab pies, which is basically any pie you love, just about doubled and stretched into a jelly roll pan, are pie for a dozen or a dozen and a half, and there's nothing to love, not to love about that. Because the filling is thinner and less weighty, I find par-baking the bottom crusts unnecessary. Praise hands emoji. (laughs) And also they bake in half to two-thirds of the time. They're also easier to store. I have this one in the freezer as we speak. This year's centerpiece pie is 80% pumpkin and 20% cheesecake. Would you like the reverse? I think that this cake is just for you and there's a recipe link at smittenkitchen.com. It's as easy as cake. Okay, I'm sorry, that was inexcusable, but it really is very simple. We're using more or less my go-to filling these days and marbling in some sweetened cream cheese batter. If you'd like a higher proportion of cheesecake to pumpkin, you can double it. The slices you see in the photos are 1 15th, but my pan was slightly smaller this time, and given that there's probably more than one dessert at your table, you're going to be much happier with one out of 18. You're also more likely to have one to two squares left the next morning, which means you get to celebrate my next favorite holiday, National Pie for Breakfast Day. Wait, this isn't a thing yet? Oh, let's fix that. Here's the recipe. Cheesecake Marbled Pumpkin Slab Pie. This serves 15 to 18, and it takes one and a half hours. As I mentioned above, this recipe is light on cheesecake and heavy on the pumpkin pie. Should you wish more of a cream cheese presence, just simply double that part of the batter using a whole egg. It shouldn't overfill your crust, but if you're getting nervous, you can always pour off one cup of the pumpkin batter and bake it in a little dish for the happiest pumpkin pudding pre-game, melty vanilla ice cream on top, plus or minus crumbled ginger snap, not an option. My pan was slightly smaller this year. My correctly sized 10 by 15 inch was being held hostage by another slab pie, so I was about an inch shy all around. I baked the extra filling as noted above and made the extra dough into pie dough cookies. It means that my 1 15th size slices are smaller than yours will be. I think we're getting into a lot of details here, Deb. I think most of us would prefer 1 18th of the regular size slab pie, especially with the other desserts to try. So and what I mean by that is chop this into 15 or 18 pieces, depending on the size of your pan. Finally, in a classic, do as Deb says, but not as she does, I forgot to mix the cream into my cream cheese batter, leaving it a bit thick. It still marbles, but requires more toothpick work to divide and swirl the islands and leaves them a little raised. I'm sure everyone will object and refuse to eat it now. Or maybe not. Your cream cheese batter should give you less guff. For the crust, you'll need two and a half cups of flour, one tablespoon sugar, one teaspoon table salt, two sticks, eight ounces of or one cup of unsalted butter, very cold. For the pumpkin filling, you'll need three and a half cups of pumpkin puree from two 15 ounce cans or homemade, one and a quarter cups of granulated sugar, one teaspoon of fine sea or table salt, two teaspoons ground cinnamon, one teaspoon ground ginger, one quarter teaspoon of ground cloves, a few gratings of fresh nutmeg or a pinch of ground nutmeg, two and a half cups of cold heavy cream, light cream or combination of cream and milk, six large eggs. And for the cheesecake, you'll need eight ounces of cream cheese softened, one third cup of sugar, one large egg yolk, two tablespoons of heavy or light cream, and one quarter teaspoon of vanilla extract. So by hand with my one bowl method, in the bottom of a large bowl, you're going to combine the flour, salt, and sugar. And work the butter into the flour with your fingertips or a pastry blender until the mixture resembles a coarse meal and the largest bits of butter are the size of tiny peas. Some people like to do this by freezing the stick of butter and coarsely grating it into the flour, but I haven't found the results as flaky. You're going to add a half cup of cold water and stir with a spoon or flexible silicone spatula until the large clumps form and then use your hands to knead the dough together right in the bottom of the the bowl and if necessary to bring the dough together you can add the last tablespoon of water. So with a food processor, you just do the first part in the food processor. In the work bowl, you're going to combine the flour, salt and sugar, add butter, and pulse the machine until the mixture resembles a coarse meal. And the largest bits of butter are the size of tiny peas and continue as I just said. So for both methods, you're going to wrap the dough in a sheet of plastic wrap and refrigerate for at least one hour up to 48 hours. You can quick firm this in the freezer for 15 minutes and longer than two days, it's best to freeze it until it's needed. Then get ready to bake the pie. Heat the oven to 400 degrees Fahrenheit and line a 10 by 15 inch jelly roll pan with a fitted rectangle of parchment paper. Then form the crust by on a lightly floured surface, you're gonna roll out the dough to a 13 by 18 inch rectangle basically about three inches bigger than your pan. Do your best to work quickly, keeping the dough as cold as possible, and you can toss it in the freezer for a couple minutes if it softens too quickly, and then using enough flour that it doesn't stick to the counter. You're going to fold the dough gently in half without creasing and transfer it to the prepared pan. Unfold the dough and trim the overhang to about a half inch. Fold the overhang under the edge of the pie crust and crimp decoratively. Return the pan to fridge until you're ready to fill. Then you're going to make the pumpkin filling. Combine the pumpkin, sugar, salt, and spices in a medium saucepan over medium heat and bring to a sputtering simmer and cook for five to seven minutes, stirring frequently. Then scoop the cooked pumpkin filling into a bowl and whisk in cold cream until smooth. Whisk in the eggs one at a time and then pour the filling into a prepared pie crust. Your prepared pie crust that you just made. To marble the cheesecake, you're going to whisk the cream cheese, sugar, egg yolk, cream, and vanilla in a bowl until smooth. Then dollop all over the pumpkin batter and use a toothpick or chopstick to swirl decoratively in like figure eights being very, very careful not to drag to the point of the toothpick chopstick into the bottom crust because you don't want to form holes. Then you're going to bake the pie for 15 minutes, and then you're going to reduce the heat to 350 degrees Fahrenheit and bake for another 15 minutes until only the center barely jiggles and a toothpick inserted into it comes out pumpkin-free. Damp is fine, but the toothpick shouldn't have loose pumpkin batter on it. Then you're going to cool it in the fridge and chill it in that fridge until you're ready to serve. Thank you for joining us for Food and Stuff. My name is Gretchen Miller.